Would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's word? Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is God's word. You may be seated. It's not supposed to be this way. You feel it. I feel it too. Looking out at the world around us, things just feel broken, wouldn't you say? It seems if we are, as if we are constantly standing before the wreckage of our world, trying to pick up the pieces and make sense of what on earth is happening. We get images on our phones of the catastrophic collateral damage of war. We get a news update about another person in power disgraced by, again, another scandal. We watch the videos of another press conference talking about, yet again, another shooting. It's not supposed to be this way. But it's not as if we are immune to this wreckage as individuals. This brokenness seeps its way into our personal worlds as well. Some of you have come in this morning carrying the weight of that brokenness with you. And your own heart cries with that same sigh. It's not supposed to be this way. There is a shared intuition that all of us have about the way that things are. How we know deep in the fibers of our being that this is not the way things were intended to be. And every influential thinker all throughout history has shared this same thought in common. Freud, Plato, Karl Marx, Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, and Jesus all agree about one thing. Something is terribly wrong with the world we live in. And this world aches to be put right. G.K. Chesterton says this, Whatever else men, has, men have believed, they have all believed that there's something the matter with mankind. Now, what has created this rift between the world we were made for and the world we find ourselves living in this rift, the biblical authors give a name. They call it sin. Now, I realize for some of you, this word may carry some emotional baggage behind it. For some, it's caught up in legalism or manipulation or maybe a deep, deeply impactful wound in your own story. For others, this word is tied to all kinds of weird religious ideas about keeping certain arbitrary rules. However it is you feel about sin, 
you must deal with the reality of sin. You see, in our modern world, we think that we have moved on from sin, that it is a framework to be left behind with religious zealotry and a bigoted worldview. However, the presence of sin still remains. Change the definition, work around titles, try to not bring it up in the public space, all fine and dandy, it's still there. Without a paradigm for sin, we are left helpless against its very real presence in our world. Dallas Willard, one of the most brilliant minds in the last couple of decades, says this, Our social and psychological sciences stand helpless before the terrible things done by human beings. And the warpedness and the wrongness of the human will is something we can't admit into serious conversation. We're like farmers who diligently plant crops but cannot admit the existence of weeds and insects and can only think to pour on more fertilizer. This is the direction we're going to be heading during the season of Lent. You see, today we join with the rest of the family of Jesus all around the world entering into a season of Lent. Lent is an ancient church tradition dating back to the earliest followers of Jesus of reflection and repentance. It is centered around the 40 days that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and his entire life from birth to death. And Lent is often marked by a period of fasting, abstaining, reflection, confession, and intercession. And so as a community, we take time to consider our lives and to view them through the lens of Jesus' life. And we began this season as a community in the prayer room on, on Ash Wednesday. Now, I want to be very clear about something. This is not a Catholic thing. This is a follower of Jesus thing that the church has been participating for millennia. We have uh, what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, which we think that just because we are further along down the road, we don't need the things that the ancients have done in the past. That's not the case at all. This is something deeply rooted in the tradition of Jesus. And so we're not drawing lines in terms of tribes. We're drawing lines in terms of what is Jesus inviting his community into. Now, ashes are a symbol in the Old Testament to signify mourning, mortality, and repentance. You find all throughout the scriptures when a prophet or a man or woman of God wanted to name the brokenness in their world, they wrapped themselves in sackcloth and ashes as a sign and symbol of mourning, as an awareness of their own mortality, and as an act of repentance towards God. Now this season of Lent culminates, finds its end, in Resurrection Sunday, where we declare with the global church to the world, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Now, the only way for us to prepare to celebrate the good news of resurrection, the good news of Easter Sunday, is we must first talk about the terrible news of sin. Fleming Rutledge says this, It is only by endeavoring to look sin straight in the face, that we are able to understand grace. So today, we embark on a new sermon series entitled, East of Eden, Sin, Suffering, and the Snake Crusher. 
And over the next six weeks, we'll be working our way through a small portion of the narrative in Genesis. And as we peer into the story of Genesis, we will get a window into how we got here today. And as we move through this story, we come to see that it's not merely a story. It's our story. That this story lives in us and retells itself in every last one of us. Now, when it comes to Genesis, a ton of people get sidetracked debating historicity and details of the story and how these compare with various scientific theories. And I want to acknowledge, I think those questions are important. However, that's not how we're going to be spending our time. We're going to be spending our time positioning ourselves so that the story would read us. You see, the first few chapters of Genesis are poetry. You see this in the cadence and the rhythm of the words. And now the point of poetry isn't to argue about fact or allegory. It is to tell a story that each of us recognizes true because it reveals something in us. It gives us language to something each of us experience but aren't exactly sure how to name. In other words, the poetry of Genesis tells us a story and as we read it, it reads us. And so we begin. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Our scene opens up. And we see that God is planting a garden in a place called Eden. Now, Eden is used as a name here, but the word in Hebrew simply means delight. And it is used elsewhere in the scriptures to speak of somebody experiencing delight or delighting in something is this word Eden. Now, the idea of Eden is, is an idea that is marked by goodness and abundance. And we see all of this with all the descriptive language in 10 through 14. We don't have time to go through all of this, but the description of the waters and the waters flowing down from a high place and splitting into four different things and all the descriptions about the precious stones and materials that were found in Eden. All of this is cueing us in that Eden is a place teeming with potential. But you will quickly realize this isn't a regular garden. This isn't something you're going to cultivate in your backyard now during spring. That this garden is actually the place where heaven and earth overlap. Let me explain a bit about what I mean. When you come to read the scriptures, you will realize that the scriptures are not haphazardly thrown together. They're masterfully woven. And just the same as an artist is deliberate about every stroke of their brush, the biblical authors craft their words carefully. And we see that the biblical authors use this language and image of the garden all throughout the scripture to talk about God's space and our space overlapping. Right? Our story begins in Eden, and we are told that God dwells among humanity here. That there's something special about this garden in which God is choosing to inhabit his presence here in that place with humanity. And God invites humanity to partner with him in what he is doing in the earth. 
that they're to take this garden and to bring forth its latent potential, that which lies beneath the surface. And the garden, as we get from the rest of the narrative, is structured. And so I have an image. Yep, cool. So we get this description throughout as we read the Genesis narrative, but we see first that on the outer parts of Eden is the dry land, yet to be cultivated, teeming with potential. And then we have actually the place of Eden. And then within Eden, in the east of Eden, we have the Garden of Eden. So there's a garden in this place called Delight. And at the center of the garden is the Tree of Life. This is the structure we see. Now hold on to this. This is going to prove really important later in the story. Keep this mental picture in your mind. But we will see that the Garden of Eden is so much more than a regular garden. Scholar Gordon Winham says this, The Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but as an archetypal sanctuary. That is a place where God dwells and where men should worship him. Many of the features of the garden could also be found in later sanctuaries, particularly the tabernacle or Jerusalem temple. And these parallels suggest that the garden itself is understood as a sort of sanctuary. Now, as we'll discuss about in the coming weeks, humans fail in their task to partner well with God, and they rebel against him, and thus are exiled out of Eden. But this is not where our story ends. The story continues, and God chooses that he still wants to dwell among his people. But because of his goodness and his glory, and because of humans' rebellion, there needs to be rules. He needs to protect them from his goodness. And so he gives humanity instructions to build something called the tabernacle, which is a fancy word for tent. And they build this tent in the wilderness as a place to be filled with God's presence. And this continues in Israel's story until they build a permanent tabernacle known as the temple, which is a permanent structure for God's presence to reside in. I want to call your attention to how the temple is designed. You see here, moving forward, that the outer part is the land of Israel. Then you move into the courtyard. Then you move into the holy place. Then at the very center of all things is the holy of holies. The temple is a mini Eden. And that's on purpose. Now there's so many really cool details that I so wanted to put in here and bore you all with a little bit, but I decided to be gracious and spare you. But things like the menorah, which is a tree-like structure that is supposed to represent the tree of life. You have different things happening with water, food always being readily available and prepared. There's all kinds of really cool things here we don't have time to get into. But you're meant to see the temple as a mini, mini Eden. Now, the, uh, the prophets and the poets of Scripture would look forward to a place where God's presence would no longer be held within the temple, but would be released into all creation. Do you want to know what they called that vision? Zion. God's presence permeating the whole earth. I wish somebody would name a church something along those lines. Someone somewhere, please. We fast forward in the story with the prophets and poets looking forward to this place called Zion. And Jesus arrives on the scene. And we see that Jesus himself is a living temple. 
Notice John's language in John 1. He says, the word, being Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word dwelling literally means tabernacle. So if you read this literally, it would say, the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. I.e., Jesus is the embodied presence of God here among us. When Eugene Peterson talks about this, he says that Jesus moved into the neighborhood. And I love that language. And so we see in the person of Jesus, this has become the place where God's space and our space overlap. Here in Jesus, we see Eden again actualized in a person. And God's presence inhabits his being. Now, when Jesus is crucified, we see this really important scene that chances are you've dismissed in reading it. But it tells us that when Jesus breathes his last, the veil in the temple is torn. The place that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the hot spot of God's presence, is torn. And so God's presence is now unleashed and it's looking for another temple to inhabit and jesus tells his disciples hey guys stay here in jerusalem until my father sends the spirit and so the disciples are waiting and on pentecost the spirit comes and rests on god's people and it does so through fire and wind which is the exact same thing that happened when Israel built their temple. God showed up in fire and in wind. And the biblical authors are wanting you to see the church is now the temple. This is why Paul later says in his letters, you, y'all, are God's temple, the place where his spirit rests. Human beings now become this place where heaven and earth begin to overlap. And we get teachings from Jesus that we're to pray that his kingdom would come, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we are to be Jesus' witnesses going throughout the world declaring the kingdom has come and is coming. The kingdom all being language of God's presence where God rules and reigns, heaven and earth are going to be fully reunited again. And that work has already begun in Jesus. And then we look forward to the Garden City. In John's vision, which, which is captured in his letter uh, known as the Revelation, all of the culmination of human history leads to this moment. Revelation 2 says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Down in the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Eden again awaits for us and the kingdom to come. All this is Eden language. Now we don't, again, we don't have time to go through all the little, the biblical authors are are coding this in Easter eggs, that this is Eden again. If you go to your Bible, some of you have a heading over Revelation 22 that says Eden restored. All of this imagery is there. And so we look forward to the day that one day heaven and earth are fully reunited. 
And God's presence permeates the whole earth as he intended for it. Now, this is a super abridged version of the story. The, other, the, the less ver- abridged version is a bit longer and has some more details. But this is the story. And so as we open the story, we see that Eden is an archetype that will be used for the rest of the story about God's space and our space crossing over. And when we read this story, when we read the Eden story, I think we sometimes bring with us some unhelpful paradigms in our mind. One of them being that Eden was perfect. Now, Eden was good, but it wasn't necessarily perfect. Let me tease out what I mean there. I think when people think about the Garden of Eden, here's what they think. Adam and Eve, like all the animals are like chill and cool. Tigers won't eat you or anything like that. We're all buddies. And Adam and Eve are drinking pina coladas, sitting in hammocks, right? This is the good life. You know, Jimmy Buffett's playing in the background or something. It's, it's the good stuff. The only problem with this vision is the Bible. And I don't mean that to be like disparaging. It's true. The Bible never says that Eden is perfect, ever. That language is never used. The language that is used is good, tov. This means that the the biblical idea of something being perfect is being made whole, being brought to its fulfillment, culmination. That's the idea of perfection in the scriptures. It's, It's wholeness that has moral realities to it, but it's not limited to moral realities. It's it's wholeness in its entirety. And Eden was far from that because Adam and Eve were given a task, a responsibility. that They were to take the latent potential that was lying within Eden to cultivate it to bring about, ultimately, shalom. Now, uh, John Walton says this. When we consider the Garden of Eden in its ancient context, we find that it is more sacred space than green space. It is the center of order not perfection, and its significance has more to do with divine presence than human paradise. Eden was flowing with potential, teeming with life, all longing and waiting to be unleashed into the rest of the world. God commissions Adam and Eve to rule and subdue over Eden, to cultivate it, to bring forth the beauty that lies within it. The idea is partnership. God has given humanity this world ripe with potential, and God and humans are to come together in it, bringing forth its potential and beauty. And so with that, Adam and Eve are given this task to cultivate this garden. Or another way to say this is to be priests in the garden. If Eden is a temple, then Adam and Eve are priests. Look, notice verse 15 says this. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden. Notice this language to work it and take care of it. First, to work. The Hebrew word abar can be translated to work, to serve, or to worship. And this verb is used all throughout the scriptures to mean cultivating of the soil, but it's also used commonly in the religious sense of people serving God in priestly texts, all throughout like Leviticus, where it's giving priestly instructions. This word is used when they use to serve. It's this word abar. And so the biblical authors are wanting us to see that Adam and Eve are in a cosmic temple worshiping, serving as priests, their job to cultivate. The next word is that of to take care. Uh, And and the second word here, to take care, is the Hebrew word shamar. Can you say that? Sweet. 
It is commonly used for priestly service of worship and is used in legal texts about observing religious commands and duties. And this is also used for the Levitical responsibility of guarding the tabernacle from intruders. So they are to cultivate the land, worship, serve God in that way, and a part of this worshiping and serving is also protecting from intruders. This will be really more important next week as we talk about that. Now, Tim Keller says this, Adam and Eve's responsibility was to be rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. Now, this image of thriving and of flourishing and of ultimately bring, being brought to wholeness is the Hebrew word shalom. Now, this word most often gets translated in our uh, Bibles as peace. And that is a beautiful and important and great translation. Um, but it also has more than it that I think our understanding comes to when we think the word peace. When we think of the word peace, we think absence of conflict, which is absolutely a part of what the biblical authors are talking about. But they're actually talking about so much more. The word shalom has way more in its view. Shalom carries the idea of living in rhythm with creation. Um, it was used to talk about a wall. If a wall was missing something, that wall was not in shalom. Like it was missing a brick, that wall was not in shalom. If the brick was restored and the wall was made whole, it would be shalom. Shalom was living in rhythm with how things were designed and created for. And so Adam and Eve's task is to partner with God in his creative work in cultivating shalom to bring about order and flourishing. Notice his rules to, to, to rule, to have dominion over, and to be fruitful and multiply. These were Adam and Eve's um, responsibility. Cornelius Plantinga, which I'm super jealous of that name. That is like, this is going to have a name. Cornelius Plantinga must be up there on the top five. He says this, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. If you missed all of that, hear the last line. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. This shared feeling that we all have is a longing for shalom. A longing for the peace, the earth, was created for a longing of uh, a longing for a for things to be set right as they ought to be so if shalom is the way that god ordered the world and set it up to be why is it when we look out with a shared sense of disappointment we don't see shalom what's happened well shalom has been vandalized and it's been vandalized by sin I want to quickly define our word sin. 
the biblical authors use uh, a variety of words to describe sin, but I only want to stick with one definition today in, 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 with our time in view. I want to talk about the Hebrew word chata. Can you say that? Chata. And in Greek, it's hamartia. Hey, some of you, yeah, I didn't even ask you, and you went for it. That's what I'm talking about. And all it means simply is to fail or to miss the goal. It was often used in archery. If you were to draw your bow back and you were to not hit the target, you would chata the target. You would miss the target, right, because your goal is to hit the bullseye. The idea is that um, it, it's not going forth for which it was created. It's not hitting the mark for which it was designed. This is the word sin. And so if the goal of creation is shalom, then sin is the failure of shalom. Or another mental image that helps me is the vandalism of shalom. It is the spray painting up, the destroying of shalom. It is this decision to rebel against what God has made, what I was made for, and to settle for a lesser vision offered by a counterfeit God that the biblical authors call chata, sin. Now we see this vandalism of sin in at least three different areas. Sin done by us, sin done to us, and sin done around us. First, sin by us. Every single person in this room makes decisions to participate in the vandalism of shalom. Whether it's lying to make myself look better, drinking excessively to numb my pain, sleeping with somebody who isn't my spouse, gossiping about a coworker who thinks I'm the friend, manipulating somebody to get something I want, you fill in the blank. All of this is vandalism of shalom, and we all participate. We all take part in this. Every single person in this room has marred God's good world with our decisions, myself included. There's sin done by us. There's also sin done to us. Every single person here has been hurt, wounded, lied about, betrayed, abandoned, stolen from, treated unjustly. In other words, sinned against. And some of you are carrying those wounds in with you today. The sins of wound, the, the, the wounds of sin done against you. And for you, sin is not an abstract idea. It's located in a very real place of pain. And then there's sin done around us. Everything and everyone around us has been vandalized by sin. Paul in his letter to the Romans even says that creation itself is subject to frustration because of sin. Every square inch of God's good world has been vandalized by sin. It infects the very air that we breathe. And we see this in culture and politics and media. Don't believe me? Open your news app. Read the first story. Chances are you're going to find sin there in some form or capacity. Sin has infected every square inch of God's good world with the curse. Cornelius Plantinga, again, says this. God hates sin, not because it just violates his law, but more substantially because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, 
because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. Indeed, that is why God has laws against a good deal of sin. God is for shalom, therefore he's against sin. So it begs the question, how did we get here? And this brings us to a choice between two trees. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. At the center of the garden, we find two trees, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. And in the heart of the garden, there lies before every individual a choice. Let's talk about the two trees. First, the tree of life. We read that this tree imparts eternal life. Now, I want to be clear. It's not that the tree is magical in some sense that it's offering its own life to the eater. Like, don't think in your mind fountain of youth. You know, you get into the fountain of youth and suddenly you're younger. It has the idea, rather, that God is the giver of life. And so proximity to the tree means proximity to the author of life. The tree does not have power within itself. It is somehow radiating God's life out forth through partaking of this tree. There's a lot to contemplate thereon. Enough for a lifetime, right? So think deeply about that. But Bruce Walkley, a commentator, says this. The tree of life represents life that is beyond the original life that God breathed into human. The first human, by nature, is susceptible to death. Nevertheless, continued eating from the tree could renew life and prevent death. Apart from disobedience to God's command, mortals had access to this tree. The tree of life allows humanity to transcend its mortality, the state in which it was created on the sixth day, so it can move to a higher dimension, to eternal life and immortality. As one partakes of this fruit, by faith, one participates in eternal life. So it is in partaking of the tree that humans become eternal. They weren't created in an eternal state. It is only in being near God's life that that life gets imparted onto them and they are able to live eternally. That's an important distinction to understand. Now, what we also see about this tree is that this tree is used elsewhere in the scriptures. I want to highlight just one example. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 says this. Speaking of wisdom, long life is in her right hand. Long life and or eternal life is in her right hand. And riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are shalom. She, wisdom, is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and to those who hold her fast will be blessed. Could have done a whole teaching just on this verse about all the ways this bleeds into all of the scriptures. Profound, powerful. Here's the idea. The, the author is writing about wisdom. Wisdom is gained by eating from the tree of life, and from the tree of life comes shalom, comes things that are pleasant, comes eternal life. That's what the biblical authors are getting at here. And so, the tree, the tree of life. Everyone's pretty down for the tree of life. Would we agree? That sounds good for everybody? 
Six of you are like that, the rest of you are, I'm still skeptical. All right, well, deal with it. The second tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Now, some of your translations might have good and evil. Not a bad translation, just not exactly what this word means. The two words here for good and bad or evil are tov and ra. Two of the easiest Hebrew words you could learn. Tov and ra. So tov uh, has a couple definitions. It means usually what is morally or ethically good and or what is beneficial, pleasant, or in good condition. Ra is its counterpart. It is what is morally or ethically bad and what is harmful, unpleasant, or in poor condition. And throughout the scriptures, tov and ra are used to describe the holistic state of something. So tov and ra could be morally good and morally bad or just not as it was intended to be or as it was intended to be. Here's an example. In Jeremiah 24, Jeremiah sees this vision of two baskets of figs. One, the figs are tov. The other one, the figs are raw. Now, these aren't like uh, morally good figs and then morally depraved figs. He's talking about one of them is ripe, tastes good, ready to eat. The other one, ugh, not good, raw, right? So that's what, that's what those words mean. So it can mean moral implications, but often it just means ugh, right? Or not good or not ideal. And ideal or as it should be, right? Think of it, okay, figs, I don't know who's eating figs here, probably not a lot of people, but like, you ever had an apple that looks fantastic on the outside, and you take a bite and it's mush? Raw. <laughs> well, you spit the whole thing out, right? And you can even say that now, raw, right, and throw it down, right? Or you take a bite, and dude, it crunches, it crisps, you know what I'm saying? Tove. that apple's good, right? That's the idea there. And so, this tree, is the knowledge of Tov and Ra. Now notice, it's not the tree of Tov and Ra, it's the tree of the knowledge of Tov and Ra. So all throughout the scriptures, for someone to have the knowledge of Tov and Ra is always a sign of maturity. Couple examples. In Deuteronomy 1, God tells Moses he's not going to enter into the promised land. A lot to talk about there. We don't have time today. But notice his line to Moses. He says this, Deuteronomy 1.39. And the little ones, and or children... Ones, the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know Tov from Ra, they will enter the land. I will give it to them and they will take possession of it. So, here, being little, being young, being a child means you don't know Tov and Ra, right? Another example this is a famous one, 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon, David's son, becomes king, and God tells him, ask me for whatever you want, and it'll be done for you. This is Solomon's reply. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David, but I am only a little child. Is Solomon like six years old here? No, he's a man. He's pointing at his need for wisdom. And do not know how to carry out my duties as king. Your servant is here among the people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant, what? A discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between Tov and Ra. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? 
Knowing tov and ra is a sign of maturity. So this begs the question. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and he tells them, don't eat from the tree that has the power to give you maturity. Why? Why would he say that? Doesn't he want them to know good from bad? The narrative makes it clear. It's not about knowing tov and ra. It's how you come to know tov and ra. Because in not partaking of the tree, they actually learn tov and ra. And not choosing to take from the tree is how they learn good from bad. But they choose to define tov and ra on their own terms and see and take. God was teaching them wisdom by them not partaking of the tree. The tree is a place of testing. It's a place of testing where trust lies. And that choice sits before you and me today. This is the choice that Moses tells the children of Israel as he's about to die. He says, the Lord God sets before you life and death, blessing and cursing. In other words, God sets before you a decision between tov and ra. Jesus says something along the same lines when he says, there are two roads, one that leads to life and one that leads to destruction. Tov and Ra. This is the decision before all of humanity. How will we choose to come to know Tov and Ra? Is it by trusting or is it by taking? That's the decision before them. Will I choose to take for myself based on my own perception of what I think is right or wrong or Will I choose to trust God to teach me tov and ra? The Lord set before Adam and Eve a choice. Will they choose to trust and enjoy abundance and long life or choose to take matters into their own hands and by doing so become lost? Now, notice the, re notice the rest of our teaching text, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Adam and Eve have a decision to choose to take or to trust. This is the decision before them. Now, just a real quick caveat. Notice there aren't only two trees in the garden. So it's not like they're there every day. Mm, you know, which one am I going to take? The text tells us there's an abundance of trees. Now, it's not that these two trees were like beautiful and immaculate and the other ones were kind of... Mm. It says of all the trees, they were pleasing to the eye and good for fruit. And this is when the biblical authors talk about Eve taking from the tree. It quotes that same thing, that the tree of knowledge of good and evil was pleasing to the eye, good for fruit, but it adds one more thing, and good for making one wise. It adds that at the end. And so all of these trees are bursting forth with abundance. 
And so Adam and Eve have the potential of have everything you want except for this one thing. Choosing to instead trust me to impart wisdom onto them. Their decision, which we'll talk about in length in the weeks coming up, leads to them ultimately being lost. They had everything. Looked at what they felt God was holding out on them with, which in a subversive way was actually the way he was giving it to them, and decided to take for themselves and instead lost everything. Lost everything. And this idea of being lost is what the biblical authors use often to talk about somebody who doesn't trust God. Think about the parable that Jesus tells famously in Luke 15 of the lost coin, right? Uh, of, of the lost son, of the lost sheep. Lostness describes somebody who's not in the place of trust. Again, Dallas Willard, we're not lost because we're going to wind up in the wrong place. We're going to wind up in the wrong place because we're lost. To be lost means to be out of place, to be omitted. Something that is lost is something that is not where it's supposed to be. And therefore, it is not integrated into the life of one whom it belongs and to whom it's lost. When we are lost to God, we are not where we are supposed to be in this world and hence not caught up into his life. When, we, uh, when we're lost to God, we are, all, are also lost to ourselves. We do not know where we are or how to get to where we want to go. We may know we are lost or we may not. Many are lost before God but do not know it. Lostness looks at least like three things, being deceived, being blind, and being in bondage. First, being deceived. It's easy to read the narrative in Genesis and be like, oh, Eve, it's so simple. God says don't take, right? You had one rule. You messed it up for all of us. Now we got to deal with this. We all make the same choice every day. Eve being deceived means she thought she was doing something good. That's the part of being deceived. Your way of thinking has been changed. The very nature of deception is that you don't know you're being deceived. Otherwise, you wouldn't be being deceived. You'd be willfully choosing something. There are people in this room right now who are actively being deceived. You think something is good or good for you or leading you down to place to life, but it's actually killing you from the inside out. It's draining your life of joy. It is sapping you of all the things God has intended for you. You are lost and you think you are found. Is this not the Pharisees? Jesus said in a crowd, on that day, Many of you will say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Were we not about the work of the kingdom? And I will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I.e., you're lost. I don't know you. We have a way of making good and right in our own minds, and that leads us to only being deceived. We call bad good. We call things that are raw 
towel. And there we are eating of its rotten fruit, wondering why it's not bearing life in us. Notice another line from Jesus' teachings. He says, you will know my disciples by their fruit, whether it's tov or raw, whether it's fruit, good fruit, that bears more fruit or bad fruit. That's the language Jesus uses. Come on. Isn't this the coolest thing? Second is that we're blind. So not only do we call good evil and evil good, but also we're blind to things. We don't even see them. Church father St. Augustine says this. Oh, sorry, Philip Yancey first, then Augustine. Yancey says this. In the modern world, sin approaches us in camouflage. Too late we, do we realize that it blocks the path to shalom, to wholeness and health. We miss the hidden dangers that prompted the ancients to regard sin as deadly. We're blind to our own sin often. And it's in God's grace he exposes our sin to lead us to confession, to lead us to repentance because we're blocking the path of shalom in our own lives. We're blind to it. Next um, is we are in bondage. The church father, Augustine, says this, I was not bound by the iron imprisoned on me by anyone else, but notice this language, but by the iron of my own choice. In other words, you make choices until one day your choices make you. We are habit-forming creatures. This is all the language of spiritual formation. You do something ultimately until you just do it by habit. There was a time for some of you before smartphones ever existed. I know some of you can't fathom that, but there was a time. And you would just wake up in the morning without grabbing a device to look at it, right? And the, the old people in the room were all, yeah, preach, right? They're letting them know. We would do, we, you would do this thing. You'd have this other thing called boredom where you'd have to just sit in a doctor's office and look at those toys that nobody play with or like the six-year-old magazines. You had to do that. There was nothing for you to do. At that time, there was like flip phones. You could text people. And, you know, there was T9. You had to say 67 buttons to say, I'm here. You know, it was a nightmare. Now, do you even think about reaching for your phone? Never. You just do it. It's a part of you. It's instinctual. Habit-forming. Just like that. That's in every aspect of your life. There are things that you do that ultimately then keep you in bondage. Here's just a recommendation for Lent. Stay off devices more than you do right now. And watch yourself. Do this weird thing where you're just like swiping your phone back and forth, left and right, because you don't have apps to go to, right? Phantom vibrations in your pocket. Oh, no, nothing still. You know, whatever it is, right? You'll re it'll reveal this in you, and you'll realize... I didn't realize how enslaved I was to my device. Now that's tech, that's devices. This is in every avenue of your life. Sin brings about bondage. It promises freedom, but only delivers further slavery. And it's all because of our own choices. Now, the last thing I wanna say here before we move to our closing is this. Often that we see throughout the scriptures is that sin is often its own consequence. Philip Yancey says this, in many ways, sin is the punishment for sin. 
The more I choose against God's design and give in to my baser impulses, the more I suffer, even if I never get caught, even if no one else knows. Quickly, someone reads this passage in Eden, reads the end. If you partake of this, you will certainly die. Adam and Eve don't die right then. You're like, looks like Snake was kind of right. A little bit, right? I mean, maybe not entirely, but ultimately death will come, sure, yeah. But it's like, they're kind, he was kind of right. Notice, the text does not say, if you eat of this fruit, I will kill you. It says, if you eat of this fruit, you will certainly die. Meaning, death is coming. And you've brought it into the world by your decision. Now notice, death comes because they are removed from the tree of life. Their decision to define good and evil on their own terms comes because they choose to take on their own, beha- on their own behalf. And then they're removed from that which could give them eternal life. The very thing that was bringing them eternal life, they've been exiled out of because of their own choice. God doesn't enact any new actors into the story. Humans choose to remove themselves from the tree of life. The precipice is put on them in their decision. And so God did not lie. He said, when you eat of it, you are doomed for death. And that's exactly what happened. And that's exactly what leaks out into our world today, is death. Often, sin is its own consequence. Uh, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, he examines this in far more detail. But you and I both know that often, it is the very consequences from the sin that we make that is its own punishment. In anger, I lash out on somebody I love. The months and years of repairing that relationship are the punishment for what I have done, right? Not new external things outside of that, but often sin is its own punishment. As we give our trust to counterfeit gods, we realize we are actually the ones who suffer. So today, like Adam and Eve, there are two two trees of decision. To see and to take on my own terms or to trust. I love what Brennan Manning says. He says this, trust is the preeminent expression of love. Trust is the preeminent expression of love. How we show God we love him is to trust him. They're deeply woven together. We're going to enter into a time of response, so if you join me in standing. I feel a couple invitations for us this morning. I feel like there are some here right now who you've come in with a very weighty decision. There's something of great consequence of a decision to be made. And you've been working hard. You've been spinning on this left and right. You've been deliberating back and forth. You got your pros and cons list. You got your Excel spreadsheets, right? You got all of this liberty, and you still feel stuck. You've reached the end of your capacity, and you need to access wisdom that is not your own. You're in a place of decision. I believe God today in his kindness wants to extend wisdom to you, and this wisdom would prayerfully bring about clarity. 
and if not clarity, peace. Peace in the decision-making process. There are some of you who are in a place of decision. We want to invite you to respond on this side of the room. Here in the middle, as I described somebody who was lost, you felt, that's me. I'm lost. And I need to be found. And I want to choose to trust. If that's you, I want to invite you to respond here at the front and center of the room. And lastly, there are those of you here who hear this teaching and God is stirring something inside of you. And there's half of you that wants to trust, that feels God calling you. But there's another half of you that's keeping you firmly cemented in where you're standing because of your fear, because of your reservation, because of your uncertainty. And here's what I know. God is so kind. He'll meet you in your reservation. He'll meet you in your apprehension. And so if that's you, if you're wanting to trust but you're struggling to do so, I want to invite you to respond on this side of the room. And as we sing, would we respond to what God is speaking to us now by way of his spirit? Let's worship and respond now.